This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday morning, the first day of this new year, and a happy new year to our Engage Radio listeners and partners in the Midwest and the South and those listening across the nation. We begin our first program of this new year with a principal leader who has dedicated much of his life to advancing our shared values and principles and inspiring others to join in affirming our constitutional principles. A prominent Houston-based business and civic leader, Mr. Fred Zeidman, Chairman Emeritus of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, was appointed by President George W. Bush in March 2002 and served in that position from 2002 to 2010. Mr. Zeidman also is Chairman Emeritus of the University of Texas Health Science System Houston and Director and Chief Financial Officer of the Texas Heart Institute. He's on the board of the Development Corporation of Israel, also known as Israel Bonds, and served on the board of the National World War II Museum. Over the course of his distinguished 50-year career, Mr. Zeidman has been involved in numerous high-profile workouts, restructurings, and reorganizations. He is Chairman Emeritus of the Gordian Group and was former CEO, President and Chairman of Cytel, a Houston-based provider where he was instrumental in the successful turnaround of the company. He held the position of Chairman of the Board and CEO of Unibar Energy Services. Mr. Zeidman has been named three times by the Ford newspaper's list of its 50 Most Influential Jews in America, and Fred Zeidman serves on the board of the Republican Jewish Coalition. And without further ado, on behalf of our listeners at America's Roundtable, Natasha Serdorch and I, welcome to America's Roundtable. Mr. Fred Zeidman, welcome, sir. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Good morning. It's such a pleasure to be here. Happy New Year to everybody. In my uh, dotage, let me just tell you that... uh, uh, I haven't slowed down with activity, and I think it's uh, 
important to mention that as well. Uh, following the Holocaust Museum, I served uh, for seven years as the national chairman uh, of the Development Corporation of Israel uh, campaign, which is Israel Bonds. Uh, and I'm currently serving as co-chairman of Council for Secure America. And that organization, by the way, has such a, an integral part in the exact things that you are focused on. It's an organization that is 30 years old. It was put together for the purpose of bringing together, and this is long before the Abraham Accords and long before Israel struck oil. The purpose of the organization was to bring together the American energy industry and the state of Israel to impress upon uh, the energy industry here in the United States, the importance of Israel to the security of the United States, and to bring to the attention of the, as I call them, the East Coast intelligentsia, uh, who were anti-fracking and anti-drilling and anti-everything else that uh, the United States is now energy independent and no longer dependent on Mideast oil because of fracking and uh, drilling, uh, the shale oil boom, and that uh, there is a current move afoot to stop all of that, which is going to make us dependent on foreign oil again. So our organization is absolutely hell-bent on trying to uh, bring that more to light. And I know the things that you and I are going to talk about have so much to do with that. Uh, the importance of the Israeli-United States uh, relationship that I am so thrilled. And if any thanks are due, they're due to you for what you're doing uh, in terms of bringing uh, everyone's attention to this, bringing focus to it, uh, and trying to reverse some of the current administration policies, which are so detrimental to the future of the United States with regard to uh, energy, energy independence, uh, alternative energies. The raw material for all in alternative energies is, is fossil fuel. So who are we kidding? Uh, and now we have stopped pipe the pipelines. We have stopped leasing. Uh, we have slowed down production. And now we're asking the Mideast producers to please up their production to help our gas prices. How insane is that? So, I'm sorry, you got me on an early rant. I have stood many times on the tops of the Golan Heights and seeing the uh, America's front line, if you will, uh, in the Middle East, uh, because it's right there in the Syrian-Israel uh, border. So, all of that being said, America's security is so dependent uh, since the bulk, historically, of the threats to the United States were coming out of the Middle East. Absolutely, Fred. And well stated in this introduction on this very important first day of the new year. We also know that America's founding uh, generation cherished that close relationship with the Jewish community in the new world. And in fact, leaders, including George Washington and others, appreciated the Jewish community's support for America's independence through their vital contribution by joining the military and through financial support and engagement in the Revolutionary War to free America. In fact, the Times of Israel reported this last year 
The title is Jew Supported the Launch of the American Revolutionary War Hoping for Equality. And I quote, When the 13 colonies decided to rebel against Britain, fighting for their rights and liberties, most of the 2,500 colonial Jews joined in their fight, hoping their liberties would be extended and they would be granted political equality, unquote. And of course, we understand that John Adams promoted the notion of a Jewish state in the Holy Land. And fast forward to July 1844, you have a close relationship with the Bush family when then Professor George Bush in 1844, in his book, The Valley of Vision, called for the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel. And in one published report, it states, the Valley of Vision sold more than one million copies, an unheard amount of for the era before the Civil War, and it turned Professor George Bush into a national voice calling for the restoration for the Jewish people to their historic homeland. Now, fast forward to what happened a hundred years later on when six million Jews were killed in Europe due to the evil scheme of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. And then right after World War II, America's leaders robustly supported an independent Jewish state. And as we know, modern-day Israel is a vibrant democracy, and Israel has transformed the land, advancing agribusiness efforts and exporting fruits, vegetables, and wine around the world, breakthrough medical research, and even cybertech advancements and initiatives that benefit Israel and America and its partners around the world. Fred, what is the current state of U.S.-Israel relations, and why is it important to strengthen this special relationship, this partnership, through bipartisan support at the national and state levels. There's been an enigma forever about, uh, not forever, I mean, since the Depression, about the Jewish support for uh, the Democratic Party. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Franklin Roosevelt, who was so good to the Jewish people during the Depression, which is why, for the most part, the Jews... Uh, have always voted Democratic, shut down total immigration into the United States from Eastern Europe. The result of that is that the Jews had nowhere to go. There's famous stories like the St. Louis, but that was only one of many, where they had to return to Eastern Europe and return to the gas chambers. The United States was the first country to recognize the creation of the state of Israel. It was, at, at that point, British Palestine. Uh, the Brits really had no love for Israel, and they really had no love to continue and try and keep the Jews apart. They abandoned Israel on a given day under the presumption, if you will, that the Palestinians uh, would, uh, the Arab world would overrun Israel and wipe the Jews out at that point. Of course, they got a little bit of a shock, and we had the War of Independence. The United States stood up for Israel then. Israel, since that time, has never backed off uh, standing side by side with the United States. Israel has been the only reliable friend of the United States in the Middle East. If you look at all the countries that arguably that we support, uh, so much of that has been on American dependence on Mideast oil. And we have continued to support uh, Israel's enemies but those are also enemies in the long run of the United States, and that's been proven over and over and over again. The Palestinian situation 
which arguably is creating some of the confusion now, uh, was never really a problem. It was a problem created by the other countries in the Middle East to defray the own uh, human rights abuses in their own country. So the United States has found itself for years and years and years in absolute total support of Israel. But in the last few months, years, we had an incredible respite during the Trump administration. Uh, Donald Trump did more for the state of Israel than any president in the history of the United States or in the history of the state of Israel. Maybe second only to him was George W. Bush and what he had done. Israel has always been uh, the front line of defense for the United States. It's been the source of much of its intelligence in the Middle East. It has been the willing executioner of uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East. As of, for instance, when I was a guest of the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, he said to me, where do you think Saudi Arabia gets its intelligence? Where do you think it gets its military equipment? Uh, it has been dependent on Israel and through that a pro as a proxy for the United States. Now, you're seeing some split in all of that right now, which is why it's making this so critical. Number one, anti-Semitism is rearing its head everywhere again. Uh, Gangel uh, chaired the Holocaust Museum for literally, at the time I was there, half of its existence. You know, I can only tell you that we have seen this movie before, and it doesn't end well for the Jewish people. Adolf Hitler did exactly the same thing that we're seeing right now. He didn't just announce one day to the world that he was going to go kill all the Jews and all the Catholics and all the Romanis and all the handicapped, all the homosexuals. He sort of focus group to see where people would stop him, and they never did. And that's what resulted in it. And if you look at what's going on, not only in the United States, but in the world right now, and you look at the continued incidences of anti-Semitism, where Jews are being killed again because they're Jews, and nobody's, nobody's stopping them. I mean, there, there's no mass outcry on behalf of the current administration to stop any of this or to punish those who are responsible for it. Uh, and this is creating a, a critical, critical juncture in the history of U.S.-Israel relationship. The current cozying up or trying to move back towards the uh, deal with Iran. Israel, for the last 10 years, has known that their real enemy was Iran. Look, they've got the Iron Dome. I mean, they've got a, a, an incredible defense system, which arguably can stop a nuclear weapon from hitting Israel from Iran. What they can't stop is the export of nuclear and biological weapons, small, into the countries uh, surrounding Israel. And so this is what has made it so critical for Israel to continue to announce that they are not going to allow Iran to create a nuclear weapon. Right. And another accomplishment of the Trump administration that we mentioned were Abraham Accords. And uh, the historic Abraham Accords initiative led by the United States was signed by Israel and four nations belonging to the Arab League, including the Kingdom of Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates. And during our visit to the Middle East a few months ago, on the one-year anniversary of the signing of the Abraham Accords, Joel and I had an opportunity to visit the UAE and meet with the business, media, and government leaders. And what we've witnessed was a new day 
in the Middle East. One must remember that Israel and UAE had no diplomatic relations, hence Israelis were not able to visit UAE. And this time we notice changes with a number of Israelis, families, visitors, tourists, business people in UAE. And Fred, early this year, the United Arab Emirates announced it was setting up a $10 billion investment fund aimed at strategic sectors in Israel, with which it normalized ties last year. And during our time in UAE, the United Arab Emirates announced that it planned to raise the value of economic activity with Israel to more than $1 trillion in the next 10 years. And Fred, from your perspective, what are your thoughts about this historic agreement, the Abraham Accords, and how does it impact U.S. policy in the region? That's a phenomenal question. And let me again get back to CSA, the organization uh, that I co-chair. We made a decision uh, about a year ago that uh, we needed to broaden our mandate because our mandate was solely based on fossil fuel and American defense. And we realized that with an administration pushing for alternative energy and again against fossil fuel, we ran the risk of being marginalized to some extent. What we decided to do was broaden our mandate into uh, activity regarding the Abraham Accords. I think the Abraham Accords, arguably, it was the seminal event, certainly of the 21st century, if not the 20th century, if not history. Uh, there has never, never, ever in the history of the world been open relationships between these countries. What it absolutely does is limits the countries, if you will, that we have to worry about uh, funding our enemies. Uh, they have now become our friends, the four countries that you mentioned. There are other countries I know that are signing on, and I think you'll continue to see uh, this kind of activity. Look, nothing happens in the Middle East without the permission of, of the 800-pound gorilla in the room, Saudi Arabia. So while Saudi Arabia arguably cannot yet sign the accords, because of the, the tough neighborhood they live in. They obviously have open relationships now with Israel. Uh, you can fly back and forth into Saudi Arabia with Israeli passports. Uh, there is a great deal of trade going on back and forth between the countries. People are openly doing business, everything that has never happened before. As Saudi Arabia has given Israel flyover rights now. I mean, this is a seminal event. This has changed the dynamic of the Middle East. The JCPOA opened Iran, revoking the JCPOA, which Donald Trump did, reimposing sanctions on Iran greatly limited their ability to finance our enemies, of which they are our main ones. Going back into this agreement, they're now getting funding to finance all the havoc that they have around the world. But the fact that all of the countries, but everything other than Saudi Arabia uh, is to some extent, you know, one of the minor concerns because they all live uh, at the uh, will of Saudi Arabia and the United States from a defense standpoint, have all sided with Israel in this battle, uh, mainly because they know they're adding Israel to their defense. I assure you there's not going to be uh, another attack, I don't believe, on Dubai or the UAE or any of the countries in that region. Iraq has been neutralized to a great extent. 
and they are participating in a lot of this. So the Abraham Accords, I, I believe, is probably the seminal event of history in the Middle East. It has opened a, an entire new world where the Middle East is now doing business in Israel. You know, I can remember I've had one meeting with Abbas, and I realized it was a rhetorical question when I asked him. But I said, what do you not understand about the fact that between Palestinian intelligence, Palestinian labor force, Palestinian education, and Israeli technology and entrepreneurship, that if you would work with the Israelis, you would create the economic engine for the entire Middle East. And of course, his answer was he knows that as well as everybody does. The problem is 80%, 80% of the Palestinian people would be very happy with that. It's just the other 20% who won't allow it to happen. And as you are well aware, every time they have opened, opened the gates, either Hamas or Hezbollah has taken advantage of it to come in and create some kind of havoc. Uh, with terrorist attacks to, to close the gates again. So making it virtually impossible uh, for the Palestinian workforce to get in and work in the United States. So the Abraham Accords is changing all of this. There's been a, an incredible relationship with both Jordan and Egypt through all of this. You've got the countries on the northern borders, unfortunately, Lebanon and Syria, which are nothing but puppet states for it used to be Iraq, now Iran. And as long as they can be funded by the Iranians, they're going to continue to be a nuisance and a problem. Uh, I noticed uh, yesterday that apparently Israel struck the Syrian ports again. You know, that's not, those aren't accidents. Uh, uh, we found out last time we did that a couple of years ago that they blew up, what, 70 or 80% of the munitions being held, you know. And so I'm sure there is something specific that they hit this time uh, that will set back that kind of activity. But the Abraham Accords have clearly, clearly changed the entire dynamic and paradigm in the Middle East. And this is what we have to push. Uh, we've got to push these continued relations. Indeed, Fred. And when we come back to the United States and on um, U.S. soil, there are some within America that are seeking to divide us on Israel, including the BDS effort, which is gaining traction on certain college campuses around our country. The BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is targeting Israel adversely, and it actually adversely affects Jews and Arabs that work together to provide for their families. Uh, this past year, we were encouraged by Kimber Yi, state treasurer of Arizona, who took seriously the decision made by Ben and Jerry's to boycott Israel. And what Treasurer Kimberly Yi did was withdrew $143 million in investments from Unilever, the conglomerate that owns Ben and Jerry's. And her bold leadership actually led to other states across America doing the same. And as you know, uh, Arizona State Treasurer Kimberly Yi is also a first believer in investing in Israeli bonds. Fred, in light of the BDS movement, which is seen for what it is, an anti-Semitic campaign, what message would you deliver to a new generation that appears to be embracing this very sordid narrative pushed by BDS groups? My home state of Texas. Uh, we also uh, removed any investment in Unilever, anything that had anything to do with Ben and Jerry's. 
So we've been in the forefront uh, of that movement as well. And all of us pushed hard, although we didn't have to. Governor Greg Abbott was firmly, firmly in support of this. But look, I think you have to take two steps backward. If you look at where all of this is happening, Joel, it's all a result of radicalism or liberalism on college campuses. That's where most of this started. And it started because of a brilliant marketing campaign on behalf of, you know, go back to the Obama administration uh, of the poor underdog Palestinians and their great mistreatment by the uh, state of Israel. I, I think the one that, that I get the biggest kick out of, and I still don't understand and ask daily, is when they talk about what we're doing to the poor people of Gaza. Uh, they forget that in 2005, we had a wholesale withdrawal from Gaza. We uprooted all of, all of the Jews, all of the Israelis who were settled in Gaza. We cleared them out. We moved them out. We pulled back completely. We left Gaza totally, totally in the hands of the people of Gaza. Uh, we funded them. Uh, the purpose was to create in Gaza what it should have been, which is uh, a utopia in the Middle East, the major, major port into the Mediterranean, gambling, casinos, resorts, everything. And yet, what did they do? They took that money. We gave them ungodly amounts of concrete, which they were supposed to build roads and buildings, and they built tunnels to blow up Israel with it. Uh, they took all their money and invested it in defense weaponry to come after the United States. And I actually sat down one night at dinner with a niece of mine who was carrying on about uh, Gaza and what Israel were doing to them. And I said, but wait a second, we've been out of there for 16 years. Uh, what were we doing to them? I said, they're being treated so badly by, by Hamas, by their own people. And the response was, yeah, but you knew that was going to happen. So you should have protected them. So, I mean, you know, you can't argue with these people, but somehow we have to match this masterful marketing job that has been done by the pro-Palestinian, I call it for lack of anything else, community, the Obama wing of the party that has been such a, a tremendous uh, supporter of the underdog that if you take a look at the map and you see six million Israelis totally surrounded by 600 million Arabs, I don't want to say every one of which wants to destroy them and drive them into the ocean and how you can conceivably call Israel the big bully on the block and them the underdog is mind boggling to me. And yet we seem to have an administration. Uh, and by the way, this was not the Joe Biden that we'd known for 50 years. He'd been very, very pro-Israel. I mean, he had always been with us and there was some real hope that he was not going to do the things he's doing now. But unfortunately, the, the power that the uh, anti-Israel uh, pro-BDS crowd has had in control uh, of Congress, and it has, for some reason, uh, sent him into support of a lot of the things that they are supporting. And, and Iran has a lot to do with that. And we're facing a deal where we're just going to have to change the paradigm, and it's going to start the same place this started. This started in the 90s when the pro-Palestinian crowd realized that they could still influence very liberal college students. And they started with the most liberal colleges. 
the most liberal newspapers, the anti-Trump crowd and mainstream media uh, had so much to do with this. Go ask anybody, uh, anybody on the left, if anyone has come close to doing anything uh, for Israel like Donald Trump has done. And they say, no, but that doesn't matter. But that's what we've got to do. We have got to continue to show people the real thing, and 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 hopefully they are going to realize what the real world is about. And Fred, this past year, you co-authored a piece with Steve Israel, a former Democratic congressman, which was published by The Hill, titled... A former congressman, still very democratic. <laughs> so you co-authored a piece titled, Anti-Semitism isn't a partisan issue. It's a crisis. Both parties must fight together. And in this piece, you said... Uh, the bitter truth is that this isn't a Republican Party or Democratic Party crisis. This is an American crisis. We are turning anti-Semitism from what it is, hated of Jews, to what it should not be, a matter of partisan bickering. And Fred, would you kindly share with us some of the historical facts that were brought up in that piece with the Jewish community in America since the first Jews arrived to America from Brazil in the 1650s? And what can Americans do to fight anti-Semitism in their respective communities today? First of all, thank you for asking that question. Uh, and there is a very, very simple answer. Uh, we can fight it uh, by standing up to it. We can fight it by speaking out. We can fight it by seriously holding accountable anybody, anybody on either side, okay? Anti-Semitism is becoming more and more mainstream on the left. It is still totally marginalized on the right. The whole world is becoming so partisan right now, uh, and there seems to be such a divide. And we have to focus, uh, first of all, uh, the left has got to stand up to their anti-Semitism. Anti uh, the Justice Department uh, has, to, has to seriously prosecute any of the organizations, any of the not-for-profits on the left. Uh, they've got to take away their, their not-for-profit status. Uh, they have to cripple those who are doing this. The Internet makes it virtually impossible. One of the real problems of the Internet is it has allowed these lone wolves are all over the country to now get together and talk about it. If you look at, if you remember at all, the one uh, murder that we had at uh, the Holocaust Museum, and it was while I was there, this is a man who, when uh, Obama took, was rearranging some of his entitlements, he decided that he had nothing left, and so he was going to kill himself but that the Jews had really done him in. So he wanted to go where uh, he could kill the most Jews. So he decided to come to the Holocaust Museum. He came to the Holocaust Museum and killed one person. It was an African-American, and, and he was shot right after that. Uh, but we've got to stop hatred. You've got organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, which was formed solely to fight anti-Semitism. Uh, it has broadened its mandate tremendously now to fight human rights abuses everywhere. But we've got to have organizations that focus on fighting anti-Semitism, speaking out against it, educating. And we need a justice department that is going to seriously prosecute anyone committing a hate crime. The real problem is if there's no punishment, you're not going to stop any of these people from doing what they're doing. I haven't had a chance to read yet 
uh, rags this morning, but I'll bet anything that there have been uh, an attack somewhere in the United States over the last 24 uh, to 48 hours. It's, it's that time of year. So this is what we have to do. We have to speak out. We can't rule with reason. I mean, these are not reasonable people. You know, hatred is not inborn. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's learned. You're not going to stop hatred unless you show people what the results of, of hatred might be for committing. It's, it's the critical issue of our time right now. In the meantime, we don't even have to look at the other countries, the major countries of the world, Russia, China, who are having time of their life watching us destroy ourselves, uh, cannibalize ourselves from the inside while they're slowly taking over the world. Uh, they know they can't beat us on the battlefield, but we're going to wake up every day and they're going to be running the world. American exceptionalism disappearing. So unless we get it back again, it's not going to happen. So it can only happen through bipartisanship. That's what Steve and I wanted to tell everybody. There are things we can agree on and we can do, and we must do that. And we legislating against anti-Semitism, prosecuting anti-Semitism is the way it's going to happen. Until there's accountability, we're not going to we're not going to get anywhere. In your distinguished career, which spans over 45 years, you also held the post of chairman of the board and CEO of Unibar Energy Services, the largest domestic independent drilling fluids company. Now, Fred, in less than a year, we have experienced a major increase in gas prices and prices of natural gas. The gasoline prices increased by 61%. In just one year, and according to the forecast by the U.S. Energy Information Administration, U.S. households will be paying 30% more for the natural gas this winter. 48% of the U.S. homes are heated by natural gas. And Fred, what are your thoughts and recommendations regarding the policies of the Biden administration which are affecting energy prices, the prices of petroleum and natural gas in America? Well, this is simple. And had you asked me this question two years ago, you would have gotten the exact same answer. Uh, everybody that uh, right after the election a year ago and this administration came in, I said, let me tell you about 2022. The American people, I don't want to say this wrongly because I don't mean this disparity. They, their major concern is themselves. And there's only two things that truly, truly affect them gas prices and food prices. And when you see those going up, that's what influences people's vote. And the day that Joe Biden was elected, his very first move was to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. And his second move was to shut down offshore drilling leases and to curb drilling on federal lands. Well, it was it's very simple. Uh, if you happen to look at Google Earth, this is fascinating. I would suggest you do it at night. And you look at the United States from Google Earth. There are four, the four brightest spots on uh, Google Earth are New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, and North Dakota. Okay. Because North Dakota has producing this ungodly amount of natural gas, and they can't do anything with it. And so they're having to flare it. And that's what's causing the problem. All of that would have been resolved if the Keystone Pipeline, which would ship. Look, there are not enough trucks. You know, how can you ship natural gas? There's only two ways, three ways to do it. Train, right? Truck and pipeline. 
Okay. And if you've got no pipeline, you only got the other two. And there's not enough of them to keep the gas flowing out of North Dakota. I was up in North Dakota one night and I was out on a ranch with some folks who were the most marvelous people in the world. Uh, at night, you know, the sun went down at 1130 at night and we walked out on their balcony and I mean, it looked like daylight. The missus said to me, isn't that beautiful? And I said, yes, but do you realize that's your money burning up there? I mean, you know, everything that's on fire is costing you money. So it, it's very, very simple. Then they did, excuse the expression, stupid stuff like, okay, the uh, Russian pipeline. Okay, Russia will now ship into Western Europe and that'll lower our gas prices. Now that didn't work either. Uh, so now what do we do? Then we go and ask the UAE, we ask the Mideast countries, would you up your production so our guy people don't have to pay? Look, nobody, nobody likes, but you could predict this two years ago that this was going to happen. And it's happened. And it can be reversed tomorrow. All they have to do is complete the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, it's that simple. Allow the pipelines to be built into the East Coast to bring the shale out of the Utica shale. Let them start drilling again. New York State, I understand, has some ungodly amount of natural gas up in the Utica. They can't drill it much less produce it. Fred, we have to stress that even Obama's administration found that the Keystone XL pipeline would have no material impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, what is the reasoning of Biden's administration to cancel the Keystone pipeline and thus increase the price of gas? Well, it, it all goes back to the progressive movement. The progressive movement are all environmentalists. We, we went back into the Paris Accords, right? Now, who is making the biggest sacrifice? The United States. Who is the, what, third or fourth or fifth largest producer of methane gas into the air? The United States. The countries that are primarily using coal and polluting the atmosphere are doing next to nothing. China, you know, Russia, I guess Poland. I mean, I don't know the Eastern European countries that are still all relying on, on coal. And this is what's polluting, but we have become so compliant to the wishes of the progressive party. And this is what's happened in the Biden administration. And I don't know why. I mean, this has never been the Joe Biden we knew, but it's the power that the progressive wing of the party is now exerting. And you're seeing all the environmental issues, which are not, look, this is why CSA takes the Upper West Siders out to North Dakota. You know, show us where we're polluting the air. Show us where we're polluting the ground. I mean, it's not happening. It's all environmentally. I'm telling you that if you go on my partner, my co-chairman, Harold Ham's properties, you could do surgery. I was in the with the Unibar. I mean, drilling mud is used on absolutely, you know, that's the lubricant that lubricates the drill bit. So you can't drill without drilling mud, right? If it's shallow drilling and it's not that big, you use water. If, if it's going to be deep and very complicated and very hot, you use oil. I mean, there is a lot of crap being pumped into that ground, but it's all coming right back out again. We show them, when it's not showing enough people, that you're not only polluting, this is the security of the United States, right? This is our security. But unfortunately, if you look at, the trio or whatever, the squad, whatever they call themselves, and the power that they're exerting 
over legislation in the United States and the number of representatives and senators who are not running again because they're having to deal with this issue, you see what our problem is. And that's the problem. There's no economic reason. There's virtually, virtually no environmental reason. And we're paying the price everywhere. And we're paying the price solely, solely because of the agenda of the current administration. And if you want to reverse it, just call a press conference this morning. And instead of making excuses for the expansion of COVID right now, tell people, uh, announce it because of gas prices, we're going to reopen the pipeline. We're going to restart leasing. We're going to restart drilling on federal land. It's all here and we can do it. There's your problem. And there's a very simple solution, but it, and it's, it's not politically acceptable at the moment. And that's the price all of us, all of us are paying for it. Fred, your closing thoughts as we begin this new day of this new year, 2022. Well, I want to wish everybody, I, I think you're well aware that one of the reasons that uh, uh, it's so quiet around me is that I am isolated and quarantined because I'm positive COVID. And let me assure you uh, that I have been vaccinated twice. Uh, I have had the booster. I have taken every precaution possible. Uh, and I still got COVID. It's out there. We have to deal with it. I don't know that it's going away. So I want to encourage everybody to be safe. I'd love to get the current administration thinking back on the real problems of the United States instead of dealing with what they're dealing with. Uh, I want to, again, thank you for having me on. I, I want to thank you for what you're doing, because this all goes back to this Israeli-U.S. relationship which has worked so well for the United States and so well for Israel for so many, so many years now. And it's all being reversed through some wrong-headed political agenda. So let's just hope and pray uh, for peace for 2022. Hope and pray for y'all to be able to continue to do what you were doing. I wish there were a million of you or the two of you could reach millions more people than you're reaching today. Uh, I think you said you're reaching four or five million people. That means there's 295 or 300 million people you're not reaching. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, God bless America and God bless y'all for what you're doing. And and uh, let's just hope for peace uh, and let's hope for bipartisanship. Uh, let's hope we can agree on things that make sense for this country. And thanks for that. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. On this first day of the new year, 2022, on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're deeply honored to be joined by a prominent Houston-based business and civic leader, the Honorable Fred Seidman, co-chair and director of Council for a Secure America and chairman emeritus of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. Once again, Fred, thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you so much, Fred. Thanks for being my friends and thanks for being the best friend of America. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorchi, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit and our 
distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. 